week's podcast is sponsored by DW Plumbing and Heating, a locally based plumbing and heating company with over 15 years experience, service in the Midlands area, experts in fall finding with both oil and gas heating, specialising in complete bathroom refurbishments and MCZ wood pellet stoves. Find us on Facebook or call Dean on 086 Glory Tear is back. Don't forget to watch and vote for our very own Alex Rowe as he takes to the stage next Tuesday at 9.30 on TG4. Download the free Glory Tear app and get five free votes to help Alex on his way to Glory Tear success. Keep it country, everyone, and vote for Alex Rowe. Broadcasting live from the little town of Clara, County Offaly, it's What's the Story with Lloyd Bracken. Get in touch today through all our social channels and have your say. Oh, and thanks for listening. Now it's over to you, Lloyd. What's the story? Hi, everyone. Very welcome back. This is episode 21. This is What's the Story with myself, Lloyd Bracken. Hope everyone is in good form and thanks for joining us this week. And if this is your first week, you're very welcome. Thanks for all the downloads and interest last week in the episode with Ken Smolin. And I hope Ken receives all the help he deserves. He's doing great work for food poverty in the Midlands. My next guest on today's podcast is very well known in Clara and in GEA circles, having refereed numerous high-profile inter-county games at and every level of the game throughout his long tenure. He is also a former businessman here in Clara and has done tremendous work for charity down through the years. It's a great pleasure to introduce to you Catch Buckley. What's the story? Very good, Lloyd. Thank you very much. It's a Ta- privilege to be here. Take me back first. What are your earliest memories growing up in Ballycumber before being summoned to Clara? Well, a lot of people say Ballycumber, but we were up nearer to Ballycumber, but the parish of Tubber. All my family, my father's family, were all born in the big house opposite the Cattenbag, just out the road from here. There was 12 in that family, six boys and six girls. Two of the boys went on to be priests. The other six, all, with the exception of two of the girls, one girl ended up in Bray and one girl ended up in America. But the rest married around locally. I have a lot of relations around. So that was a big family, 12. Yes, six boys, six girls, yeah. And my father was Tim Buckley. And my mother was Pauline Cantrell from just up the road, a few miles, the other side of Valley Cumber, Ahadonna in Rahan. She was Pauline Cantrell. And she came down to work in the house where we were all born and reared Flanagan's owned it at the time and she came to work there and that's how she met my father down in Tubber. Don't ask me any more on that, I don't know <laughs> the ins and outs, but that's how they met. So where were you reared then? Our family was a family of eight. I'm the second youngest, believe it or not. John was the eldest and we go back on a few stories after. John passed May Fox down in Rosemount. Hannah Rigney, who's now living in Lemonahan. Tim was... More or less, he went off to England young and came back and settled in Ballybunion in Kerry. Seamus is married and living in Fraban. I come next and Dora Glynn is living over in Ballyfor. She's shortly coming to live in Tullamore. It's the youngest. What was it like, Kat? You, did you get on well? Yes, I would say. Well, I don't remember any such opposite like that. We didn't. We, we, we worked hard. We were reared on a big farm, Lloyd, and literally had nothing. My father, believe it or not, died at... 42, on the 1st of October 1955, and my mother was left with eight. We were on a farm of 119 acres, and it, the farm got the better. John, the eldest, went out to work when my father died. He went to learn how to drive a bulldozer and worked at the bulldozing. He worked for a man called T.J. Fox from Ballanderry in Rosemount, and that's 
how TJ come to meet me. I live in John home from work and what met me and that's it, me. But um, we did get hard and in 1963 we had to sell the farm, believe it or not. We couldn't make ends meet. Very sadly, I can remember one specific moment. As a young lad, my mother wrote out a list of groceries and she said, go up to Williams's in Ballycumber. It was Williams's, what's now Gavin's, on the corner in Ballycumber. And I handed in the list and the list was got up and the bag of messages was put in front of me. And I can remember clearly, young Buckley, have you got money? And I said, no. The bag of messages were healed out and I was handed back an empty bag. That was about 1962. So. What age were you then, Catch? I was born the 13th of September 1951. I was 12. 11, 12. So that was a tough message to bring home to your ma- your mammy then? Yes. Well, she probably half expected it because she would have known. The only good thing about Clahatania, though, that's our hometown. It's just past Ball Art. You go out the road, you're... You know it well. Yes, you know it well. And Ball Art up into Clahatania and the Tinny Muck Road is up to your right. Lloyd, wonderful neighbours. They all helped her out. She was a widow at 1955. All helped out. Wonderful, wonderful neighbours came together. We got through. The farm was sold, and I know it was sold for pittance in five, six thousand, in around that. Six years after that farm made ninety something thousand. I suppose as a young fella, you were twelve at that time. I had it. Had it a big <clears throat> impact then on you? Ah, uh, sure it had. Sure it had. I went to school. I went to school in Tubber. I served mass in Tubber. I walked from there. It was three miles from our house down to Tubber. But we were near, as I said to you before, we were nearer to Ballycumber. But I even walked mass. Half eight in the morning was mass in Tubber. So I'd be leaving the house around quarter to eight. Straight from mass up to school. The church and the school, as you know, mm. in Tubber, very close to one another. And it could be four o'clock in the evening and I'd be home. And all we had that time going to school was a bottle of tea, probably in a chef's sauce bottle. Bottle of tea. A cup of bread and jam. Did you like school, Kat? Uh, no. I got a primary cert and I think maths carried me. I left there and I went to the Carmelite and Moat. I was in the Carmelite and Moat in 1963 and how I remember it was all football. Westmead got to the minor All-Ireland football final in 1963 and a lot of the lads were attending the college and Moat. I stayed there about a year and a half. Right? I came out and came back to this tech here in Clara and I think I was just coming near the end of my first year and I walked out one day and down the town and into Danny Rabbit and asked Danny for a job and I started butchering. That was it. I wasn't fit for the camera college. I couldn't. I didn't understand Irish. Maths, as I said, was my only subject. So into Danny. Into Danny, got the job. Butchered with Danny for a few years. Went from there to Five Star and Tullamore. The E. Williams is owned at Five Star. And I got great experience because I worked literally in every supermarket I had around the country. I signed up for holiday relief one year and I ended up everywhere, anywhere. But when I first, the first job I got with Five Star was in Dawkey in County Dublin. Beautiful place. And I loved working there. Met a lot of lads, strangers. A man called John O'Gorman down from Lismore and Waterford called to see him about three years ago as my manager. You know, and I met a lot of lads. It was lads from Westmead everywhere working for Williams's. Was it the social aspect you liked of the butcher and meeting people and chatting? But sure, of course, when you were behind the counter you were meeting people. And this is true. You remember Monica Sheridan Cook on television? Mm. Monica, and she'd be always licking the fingers. <laughs> Monica lived up the Killiney Road. Bunny Carr lived up beside her. Pat Kenny, I think, is up that road somewhere now. If I'm up that area, I always go for a drive up to Killiney Castle because you can see literally back over the whole of Dublin. But Monica took kind of pity on all the country gossips that was in the supermarket, and she invited us all up for a meal on a Saturday night. Mm. Always remember it. 
Wow, what was that like? That was it a- was beautiful. <laughs> sure, we were nervous going into it and whatnot, but we set it down. This is a fairly salubrious area now, up in Dockey. Yes, very you, much so. You, you fit in nicely. It's <laughs> in lovely. It was lovely. She was lovely in the shop when she come in, and she always had that little soft spot for the country fellas. Were you ever sorry you left school, Catherine? I suppose now, when I look back, when I see how well the boys done in school and what was to be got over, and I see a lot of the youngsters. But sure, unless they go to school now, Lloyd, they stand no chance. You know, long ago, I think everyone nearly went from national school to the factory, jobs. Some left and went back and re-educated and whatnot. So when did the time come for you to say, right, I'll set up my own business here? Not for a long time. I worked for others for a long time. I came back down from Dorky, I'd say, after a while. I worked in Williams' in Tullamore for a good while. And Tormies approached me, crossed the road from the bridge house. And I went to work for Tormies. I was with Tormies when I got married, actually. Yeah, so that was 1972. I was with Tormies from... I, I, I went to them first in 1970, and I stayed with them until about 75. 75, I came back and went into Pope. And in 79... The Tormies came back again and I went to Tormies again. And it probably was a lucky break because I was in the shop in Tullamore. Now, the shop in Tullamore, Tormies shop in Tullamore that time was, there was about 13 or 14 working. It was so busy. The man that was running the shop in Kilbegan passed away. And Robin Tormies says to me, he says, will you go out and take charge of the shop in Kilbegan? And I was delighted with the move. I went to Kilbegan in January 1980. I left that in September of 1986, I remember it was the same weekend as I refereed the minor All-Ireland final. I finished work on a Friday because I was going to Dublin Saturday and whatnot. So I was in Tormies in Kilbegan from 80 to 86. Right. Yeah. Go back for a minute. Why did you go into Danny Rabbit and not into well, a factory or somewhere? Uh, was it just an interest you Just had? an interest I had, I suppose. One of my father's brothers, Uncle Oliver, was ended up in Mullingar. As a young man, he was butchering. He ended up in a huge business in Mullingar, went into farm machinery, went into everything, done very, very well for himself. I just thought about the butchering. Well, I didn't have my own business until 89, and that just come out with pure... Now, this is 86, I finished in Quebecan, and the boys at home, John and Seamus, were at breadboards, pallets and whatnot at the time. When I come out with Tormies in Quebecan, I worked with Tony Fallon for a short few months, about nine months. Then I came back and joined the boys in the breadboards and that. Kevin Wire was down River Street, and all of a sudden I heard Kevin was closed up and gone. I hadn't been talking to Kevin. He didn't tell me he was going out of business. Was I interested in taking over? The place was actually closed. It was a small shop. It was belonging to Lily Flattery. And one Saturday morning, I just got into the car, drove down River Street, went to Flattery's door and asked, could I rent the place? And from there, took about a week to do things with it, getting extra stuff that we'll say Kevin hadn't. 1989, April 89. Were you nervous about that? I wasn't really. I felt good about it because at that time, Lloyd, I'd done a great business. It's only in latter years that I think things have gone down so dramatically in Clara. Right. Do you think that's because of the the bigger shops in, in other towns? And- well, it has a lot to do with it. Like, naturally, because I was lucky that a lot of people that went to Tullamore to shop come back to me for their meat. You know, that's just as simple as that. But then the supermarkets started doing meat in a big way. Even Aldi and Lidl. You can buy the very best of meat in there. Yeah. So it became a family business then? It was a family business then, and I was on my own for a long time. Now, the boys would come in after school and be always there to give you a hand to clean up. I worked long hours then. I went down that green every morning, 6.30 roughly, and it would definitely be 6.30, could be 7. Can I go back up in the evening? And you were there all day? Must have been a labour of love, catch It, it was, I suppose, and then, you see, the boys were small. You had to do it. There was a lot of little bills to be paid and so on. Where did you meet Margaret? 
I met Margaret one evening. You know Margaret's Margaret Riley from Ahamore. And herself and her great friend of a lifetime, Annie McGrath, she was Annie Bastic then, were walking down the street and I don't know, I was going heading Kilcorsi direction and I happened to join in with the two of them. I knew them. But we were going up along the road and they were both eating a bag of potatoes. <laughs> <laughs> Annie offered me potatoes and I said, no thanks. Margaret Riley offered me potatoes and I took them. <laughs> <laughs> so that was the challenge. So no, I don't. <laughs> don't ever take potatoes out. <laughs> so that's it. And that was, oh, let me think, we were married in 72. That was about 19... I was going out with Mag Buckley when I was only 15. I was married at 20. I got married the 1st of August, 72, and I was 21 on the 13th of September. We lived up in Ahamore. We lived up with Margaret's mother and father, a lovely old couple, you know, they were great sound people. Paddy Riley was a very popular man and Clary was a great tradesman. He'd done a lot of little jobs for people up and down. And, and Paddy Riley knew more about my family than I did myself. He knew all my yes. father's generation. He knew them all. He was very great with an uncle of mine that was in Moor. He was a postman. Paddy Riley, when he was in Darmy in Athlone, cycled Athlone every day. He was moved to the Corra then and he cycled to the Corra on a Monday morning and cycled home on a Friday evening. Oh. Mrs Riley was Nan Connor. Her parents were Kilcorsi. Um, Mag's grandfather and granny lived where Kevin Fallon's house, you know, the Lord be good to Kevin, where the Fallon's house is. I think there was 13 Rileys all together, but four, the last four, very young, true. Now, one was three, I think, don't ask me. I don't know the exact same, but I know they did. But, but anyway, it was, ended up like the same as ourselves. There was eight of them. Her eldest brother was gone to Australia before Mag was born. He left for New Zealand in 1945. And his first, he went from there to Australia, and his first visit home was 1975, and that was the first time they met. And oh. Mag was pregnant with Garrett at the time. What was that like to meet her brother for the first, first time? First time. Sure, the excitement in the house. Sure, even for the mother and father. And that time, no phones. Like you'd ring Australia now if you wanted to talk to someone and whatnot. That time, letters. The father was a great hand to write letters. And Garrett, the eldest son, was a... He'd, dictate a letter yeah. but the wife had to write it right. he was a postman in Australia and that was his first time home in 1975 and our Gareth was born while he was home and they stood for Gareth before they went back that's and that's why he was called Gareth it was brilliant there was great excitement at the time when he was coming home yeah you can imagine yourself gone in 1950 30 years oh. when did you get to the green then? we got to the green eventually I bought the house in October 77 and before I got the key, you know, what was on his houses and this, and I remember I bought it off the late Berghound. And we moved down the green March 78. And we had John and Garrett. When we went down the green, Cartridge was born in the green. Yeah. And a lovely place to live. I'm so happy in the green, so is Mag, because, she, you know, I suppose winter time of the year, <coughs> living in Ahamore, she'd be afraid to go up or down the town on her own. Now, if she wanted to go out at night, she has lists. But the green is a great community. <coughs> Always has been. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Don't talk to me about the whole of Clara as a community. Fantastic. So tell me about your GEA links, Catch. I'm well, sure I was born and <laughs> reared in a GEA <laughs> madhouse. My brother, John won a senior championship with Clara in 1960. He left Clara then, I don't know when, we'll say 62 or 3, went back to play football at Ballycumber. And he won two junior championships with Ballycumber. They won junior in 63 and 66. And Ballycumber won their only senior football championship in 1968. And John was there with them. Sonny Daly, I believe, was the captain. Sonny Daly was the captain, <laughs> yes. Ah, right. uh, sure, look, I used to love that at that time. When John, even back 1960, when Clara 
won their first senior title. John would be coming into training. Michal Gagnon at church, he was one of the top men in Clara Club at that time. And I, as I got in, John had said to me if it's Saturday morning, call in to Michal Gagnon when you go to Clara and see what's on, is there a practice match, training, what's on. I'd call to Michal Gagnon, I'd be told exactly what was happening for the weekend. But when John was going to train with Clara, which was probably two nights a week, Saturday evening or a Sunday morning, I always went with him. Same in Ballycumber. When I was a gotten, I'd be behind the goals. They'd be out kicking in the balls in and out. And I'd be one of the young lads that was there behind the goals. That's how it all started. Nice. Got a fierce interest in it. I played a bit of football myself. Played minor football with Halfley. Clara won the minor title in 1966. And Father Nicholas Clavin was with them. And Des Baggett was on that team. I couldn't. Gene Henry, Thomas Dignam. We got to the final again in 67 and were beaten. I played minor football for Offaly in 1968 and 69. 1968, we were bet in the first round in Crow Park. 1969, we won our first round. And I can tell you, it was a very famous day for Offaly GA. It was the day of a famous treble. Three teams. Well, I was in goals for the minor team that day. We beat Loud. The senior footballers beat Westmead. And it was a first cousin of mine in goals for Westmead. And the senior hurlers beat Wexford, who were the All-Ireland champions of 1968. It was a great day for Offaly G. I have the papers at home from them, Matt. That was a phenomenal day, three teams. Yes, three teams. And I played with them. And I wasn't on with a, a county panel after that. I played minor. We were betting the second round. And believe it or not, it was Wexford, minor football team who beat us. And they reached All-Ireland minor final the same year. So, you know, everyone said at the time, oh, Wexford beaten Offaly in football. But Wexford got to the All-Ireland, right. that same minor team. 1971. And I was still playing football, playing with Clara at the time. And awfully, under-21 footballers reached the Leinster final in Mullingar on a Sunday evening against Mead. When they come to seemingly the final weekend, I don't know how come, I don't know who was there. I know John Joe Ryan and Dangan was in goals, but they had no sub-goalie. And I got a phone call or a message sometime around two o'clock, half past two, to be in Mullingar with me stuff. And I have a Leinster under-21 medal from 1971 without ever kicking a ball. <laughs> Granted, I trained with them after, right up to the time they played for Manning in the All-Ireland semi-final. And that was, and I'm, uh, 1972, I got a running goals for the Offaly senior team, one game only. It was a tournament match against Sligo, played at Shannon in County Clare. And that was my... Right. Lot was awfully like, but so, I always had a fierce interest. Going back to that time as your sub, that was a handy medal, was it? It was a handy medal, that's for sure. <laughs> yes. So and well, of course, I was there for then for the All-Iron semi-final. The All-Iron semi-final against Fermanagh was played, I think, in Cavan or somewhere. Would it, would it be fair to say, Catch, you're more famous for your refereeing? Could be. Where did that come from? One Sunday, I know, it was about 1975, and I was in more. My brother John, we went to last mass in Tubber every Sunday, 11 o'clock. Home, quarter to twelve, mother would have the dinner ready. Into a car, Connor Park. That time there could be three matches. Great times, plenty of matches. I, I won't start saying who was playing because I just don't remember, but no matter who was playing, we were there. This day I went in and I always, from my time working in Williams's and Tormies and whatnot, I knew the late John Down very, very well. And he come over to me and he says, just out of the blue. He says, book, he says. He always called me book. He says, there's a college's challenge across the road between St. Mel's and, and I think it was a leash college, probably Ballyfin. And he says, there's not one out there to referee. He says, there's a whistle. Out you go and referee. He says, you played football long enough. And I went out and he, I knew he'd come out and he stood and he watched a lot of this match. And he come to me after, he says, that won't be your last one to referee. 
1966, he started sending me fixtures. Just like that, no training, no courses, no nothing. And I started then in 1966 and, you know, awfully league matches, championship matches, and then into the bigger. I refereed the junior final in 1978. It was a replay. And the first match, there was hell for leather. And I can tell you who refereed that match. The late brother Sylvester refereed that match. It was Killy and St. Bridget's at Crohan. And I refereed the replay. St. Bridget's won that. 1979, I had been doing senior matches on a regular basis, but I had never even done a county semi-final. But this Sunday morning, I was sitting at home. It was about 10 or quarter past 10. I saw this car pulling up at the gate. And it was Cecil Cox at Killy. Cecil was refereeing. He was refereeing a long number of years before me. He says, Catch, I'm going away for the day. He says, and I'm down to do the county semi-final between Tullamore and Welch Island tonight in O'Connor Park at 7 o'clock. You go and do it. See, you didn't go through county board committees that time, right? It's just ad hoc. You go tonight, that's I, it. You know, right. I, I remember once saying at a referee's meeting, refereeing was so badly organised at the time. That's how I felt about it. If I was down to do a match and all of a sudden at the last hour I couldn't go... God rest me mother, if she was able, I could send her. <laughs> but anyway, Cecil said to me, you go and do it. And it was one of, the, I'd say, looking back now, it's one of the better games of club football I ever refereed. Them two clubs were in their prime at the time. They both had, I suppose, five, six men each on the awfully senior panels. And awfully were just coming real good that time. That was 1979. No, 78, sorry. And I was very disappointed. I'd done that semi-final. And it was a marvellous match. And I was very disappointed I didn't get the final. Cecil got it again. He was longer around than I was. But anyway, I got my first senior final in 1979. From there on, finals. I know, Lloyd, from, because when we'd done a final in Offaly that time, you probably received a medal of the same grade. If there were senior finals, you got a senior championship medal down the line, intermediate to a senior B, junior. I think from a board that's at home, because I don't even look at them now. I refereed 10 senior county finals, nine football and one hurling. I done both. You know, a lot of lads now, Brian Gavin has done both. Mick Sheridan. Clara was always a great town for supplying referees to the county board. But um, I think I refereed about 65 county finals in my time. Now, I'm talking about underage schools, the whole lot. One final that I didn't do, and it's the only one I know of, under 21 hurling. Now, I only took up hurling about my last six, seven year of refereeing because I finished in 2011. My back came at me. It was the time I came out of work in the shop. This shock. was 35 years later. <laughs> 36 and a half seasons. Right. Yes. I refereed adult finals in five different decades. Adult finals in five different decades. Oh, yeah. yeah. What made a good ref catch? You know what I mean? For someone like me looking in. A good referee is someone that probably played a bit of the game themselves, have a lot of common sense, Try and be as fit as possible because the nearer you are to the action, the better decisions you make. If you were far away, the boy in the sideliner up on the hill can shout and roar at you because he's, he's, he saw, got as good a view of it as you did if you're not there. The courses did help, naturally. I'm not, God, I wouldn't like to say, it, you know, the courses and learning and knowing the rules. Is it hard to switch off on the pitch, listen to a supporter? Oh, he sent him off for free. No, there was, there was times. I always tell a story about refereeing one particular club and I always knew a voice. He was just a nuisance and non-stop. And I knew the voice. Every club was one of I could go to him after and tip him on the shoulder and you were ahead again today. Yeah. There'll always be lied. At the end of a game, there'll be always someone saying, that man done a desperate job and that and that man done a great job. Talk to me about one particular match. 
It was uh, Wicklow versus Leash. Yeah. 1986. <laughs> I You're kinda, laughing, Kat. I, I, <laughs> I, knew, I knew this would come. <laughs> <laughs> well, you were known as the Battle of Ockram. The Battle of Ockram. How did yes. that feel? The 16th of June, 1985. The hottest day of the year. On a pitch that was as hard as the road out there. And no silent. In other words, the people were seated right into the... Within, uh, I'd say, uh, two yards of the pitch itself. Leash were after winning the National Football League, which was a big thing. Port Leash pitch was after being closed for about 12 months or more, because I refereed a lot of matches in Port Harrington, even the Centenary Cup in 84, their matches were held in Port Harrington. Or Port Leash itself was being um, redeveloped and stand and everything. And the opening was against All-Ireland champions Kerry. And Catch Buckley was invited to referee it. One month before Ockham. <laughs> Leash were after winning the league and they were an outstanding team I have to say they were outstanding they beat Kerry that day and a strong Kerry team I think Kerry might have been minus one or two but no more and they beat them comfortably I was to referee Westmead and Wicklow in Ockram on the first in the first round of the championship and I know I had a little bit of a muscle problem and I I just wasn't able and I'd say if I had to do Westmead and Wicklow I may not have been a point to Leash and Wicklow so it was written in the stars Written in the stars is right. But, Lloyd, I look back on it. I have no second thoughts about anything that happened in it. The actions I took. Give us a little flavour of what the match was like. What did happen for people who mightn't know? Well, it's very easy to say, but I don't, I, you know, I, I, I wouldn't like to accuse anyone of the wrong. Leash were a marvellous team. I, t- I think they had the game won before they ever left Leash to go talk from that day. But Wicklow were no bad team. Never are. Even this year now they've won a few games they're after getting promotion in the league they won their first round last Sunday they're playing me next Sunday in Ockram and Wicklow were well able but Leash I think were planning for further days down the road and there was four clean striking incidents in the game and the four men were sent off and three of them were Leash and one Wicklow the first Wicklow man that I went to I saw him lying on the ground sitting on the ground and when I went he was actually spitting teeth out into the palm of his hand. Yes. And the leashman standing over him and nearly going to swing again. But anyway, I sent the leashman off. Then there was two men sent off together. And late in the game, probably one of the best footballers that was around in many a day, Tom Prendergast. I'd say I lost a cool. He just knew, here we are best after winning the league. And he... And Wicklow as well. He struck a Wicklow man out on the sideline. Had to go. I'm quite comfortable about that, the force and the nose. Because I watch a lot of football live. I go to a lot of games. And not in recent years, I don't. But I, as you know now, they're all on telly and I watch them. The referees nowadays, I think, I can't send off a Dublin man. Dublin are going to be in Dahl Ireland. I might stand a chance of getting it. Do you think there's that to it? I do think there's that with certain referees, yes. And I think there's referees pulling out of big decisions. Yeah. Would you be critical watching a referee on TV yourself? Not critical but I would pick up on things that I done he's not doing them now and he's still there Go back for a minute if you, if you don't mind to Wicklow he's don't mean to harp on about No, no. But what was the crowd like then? The crowd was huge like UV82 83,000 in Crow Park now and it's huge and the atmosphere is huge this was a small ground in Ockram in Wicklow and I think the capacity was about eight, 9,000 and I do remember there was 12 there on the day. And it's sweltering heat. It was something else. It was the same as now 82, 82 and a half thousand in Crow Park. Right. 
There was rumours that you were escorted out of that ground. Is that correct? Uh, that is not correct. I got it very hard to get off the pitch. Now, that was natural because the crowd had no fences, no gates to climb, no nothing. I was surrounded. And as a matter of fact, only for another brilliant, awfully footballer and who had family connections in Clara, a man called Pat Spallandangan was a guard somewhere in Wicklow. And Pat was one of the first men to me and there was others there to help. It took me about, I'd say, three quarters of an hour to get to the dressing room. Now, the dressing room was a glorified small tin shed and it was only fit to hold about the referee and the two linesmen. The four umpires had to kind of go out and stand outside because there wasn't room for everyone in it. And was people trying to get at you? Yes. Yes, there was. I can't deny that. Of course there were trying to get happy, but not a one ever did. Then the thing calmed down. I know we were a long time there and I know I couldn't get enough drink into me. I was dehydrated completely. And about three quarters of an hour I was dressed. You had no showers, no nothing. But the next thing a knock come on the door and they said, look, come, we're going to walk you to your car now and you're going to drive over here. I was walked to my car. I could see my car in the distance from the minute I come out dressed and the crowd had more or less gone. Lord be good to Jack Bootman. He was Leinster chairman and was later president of the GA. And Jack was a vet up that called Bopa. And I know Jenny Kennedy, Sean Kennedy's wife, worked for Jack Bootman. But anyway, Jack Bootman was in my house that Monday morning, I'd say about nine o'clock. He said there was two men arrested in Ockram yesterday and they stood to win 20,000 on leash winning the Leinster Championship. Wow. That's what brought the anger. Right. Gambling. That's unbelievable. Now, a lot of people say, I know it said, there's even people that have said it to me themselves when they want to be smart, that was then to you, you were gone. Lloyd, that was June 1986, sorry. I think I may have said 85 earlier. 86. I refereed the minor All-Ireland in 86. I refereed the National Football League semi-final in 1987. I refereed All-Ireland Senior Football semi-final in 1987, Galway versus Cork, draw match, refereed the replay. And my last inter-county match was March 2002, and my first inter-county match was Easter Sunday 1980. 22 years inter-county, 36 and a half years right. in Offaly. Did you ever feel like the elusive one left you an All-Ireland final? Well, that, but sure, everyone aims for those things. Well, I have to say, I have two All-Ireland medals. I'd refereed under-21 All-Ireland in 1985, and I refereed the minor All-Ireland in 1986. Really? The under-21 All-Ireland in 85 was played before the replay of the All-Ireland Senior Football semi-final, Monaghan and Kerry, and there was 67,500 people in Crow Park. That was near capacity that time. The following year, I'd done the All-Ireland semi-final, Crow Park. That Easter Sunday, I think I'd done the National Football League semi-final, Crow Park. So, you know, I didn't lose out on the particular thing. But <clears throat> I don't want, I wouldn't like to go down the road and say why I never got a senior All-Ireland. I'll give you just another little example. I refereed five All-Ireland Colleges semi-finals and never done a final. An All-Ireland Colleges final is seen as a big occasion because the priests, the bishops and all those are there. And always the big man got them. Fellas that mightn't have refereed a colleges match that year, where I would have been out in snow, rain, muck and dirt back in February and March doing Leinster colleges matches and whatnot. I'd done five All-Ireland under-21 semi-finals, but I did get an under-21 All-Ireland. So I, I just didn't get a senior All-Ireland, that's yeah. it. You spoke of some great refs in <coughs> Clara. Did any of them ever come to you for advice down through the years? I did do coaches 
coaching uh, was in Tullamore and a lot of the young lads that was coming on and Clara attended them, yes. Yeah, of course, you have Maria Stones now. Maria Stones, and I remember... Chris Dwyer. I remember a man called Dan McCartan from down one evening rang in the shop. I answered the phone in the shop. It was winter evening. He says, any good young hurling referees down there? Yes, I said, there is one. And I said, Brian Gavin. And we all know where Brian went since. Fantastic stuff. Fantastic. Four senior all ever. Catch, may I I mention another match uh, you officiated, Dublin versus Loud in 1999, in which your your brother John was an umpire at the... Can you you take up that story from us, if you don't mind? I can. I can remember well. That morning, Sunday morning, he came into my house about 20 to 12. I, I had told him we were leaving at 12. And Eamon Lark and the Ballycumber was with him, another one of my umpires. And I think Bertie McMahon was out in the road and John kind of stood, had Eamon come in, we sat down and I didn't want to, I, Jimmy McGrath, now Jimmy, the umpire with me for 30 years or over as well. And I said to Jimmy, I'll collect you at 12 o'clock. So I waited about 5 to 12 to leave, but we left and he was in absolute great form. He was telling Yarn going up, Andy Cunningham the same day couldn't come with his. He got a late call to go in. There was after being a fatal accident and post mortem in Tullamore. Andy couldn't come. And I said, Sure, look, no problem. I knew John Costello, the Dublin secretary, very well. And once I walked into Parnell Park and said, John, I'm a man down, the last minute puller, no problem. He says, I'll have a man. Just remind me near the time. And we left anyway and we drove to Parnell Park. We got there about. Half past one, quarter to two. He was in great form, telling Yarn, going up in the car and whatnot. And he said to me when we went in the gates, he said, I haven't been here since this venue. Uh, Parnell Park was after being renovated. He went off for a walk for himself. And I went into the dressing room, we sat down, because always and never at those venues, cup of tea immediately and anything you'd want, it'd be sanguineous, no matter what you'd want. And he came back in and he had a cup of tea and the first half of the match went as normal. About 10 minutes into the second half, I always remember the time, it was about, no, it was 16 minutes into the second half. It was just gone four o'clock and a loud man caught me by the shoulder. And that time now, you didn't allow players to handle you. You know, they might want to say something to you and they'd say, but he says, look, he says, one of your umpires has collapsed. And I looked up and I knew who it was immediately. So I stopped the game naturally and went up to him. And the loud goalie, a chap called Niall O'Donnell, a guard in Navin, and he says to me, he says, don't panic. He says, I do a bit of whatever, and he says, that man's not too bad. Noel McCaffrey was with the Dublin team in his capacity as doctor, the father of the present Jack McCaffrey, who was just retired this season anyway, whether he'd come back again or not, I don't know. And Noel rushed in off the sideline and was with him. And somebody from Leinster Council came to me, it was the O'Burn Cup final, so it was a Leinster Council fixture. It wasn't what you call a Crow Park fixture. came to me and said, look, one of the linesmen will take over from you. Get in and get dressed and if he's going to the hospital, go with him. And I, there's a lovely story. There was a little man outside the wall. And I'd say he was a Dublin man. I never, I, I often meant to ask. Now, he was well on. I don't think he'd be living now. He got across the wall and he took off his most beautiful overcoat, folded it with the inner side out and put it under his head. I'll never forget. And um, Niall O'Donnell said to me, he says, don't, Panic, he says. So I rushed into the dressing room anyway. John Costello, the Dublin secretary, was over to me and he says, come on, he says, we'll get in. And while I was in the dressing room, he brought in a telephone to me and plugged it in. He says, do you want to ring anywhere? It was confirmation day in Clara and Maura, John Dwyer, Maura Cavan and neighbour, worked for Father Welch in Tubber in the parochial house. And I knew Father Welch would be at the confirmation. Now, funny now, in a circumstance like this, the way I start, I taught him each day. 
And I rang Annie McGrath, her great friend Annie, and I said, Annie, will you go down to the church and go to the secretary door and go in? I said, the confirmation is on. But I said, you'll, I said, you'll surely make eye contact with Paddy Hill and ask him to get your father Welsh. I said, John's after, I thought at the time, suffering a heart attack. So Annie done that. She went straight to the church and Father Welsh went and left confirmation and went out to Todd Honey to tell them. I was afraid to ring home because Mother was in great form at the time. This was March, the 7th of March, 99. Father Welch went out and went in and broke the news gently. I got dressed. I come out. I got into Damblin's. The way Damblin's way had for me, already had John gone to Damblin's. He was going to Beaumont, which is nearby to Parnell Park. Dr. Noel McCaffrey was with him. I always remember Noel McCaffrey giving him an injection into the arm on the way over. And it absolutely scared me. John never blinked an eye. He, it was an aneurysm. And it, 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 the aneurysm burst close to the heart, but it went to the brain and it went to the heart. He died exactly one hour after. We got to Beaumont. He was in good form. He, uh, he talked to me the same as you and I are talking now. Certain things he asked me to do and whatnot. He knew he wasn't good. And Noel McCaffrey told me, he says, he says, catch, he says, it's not good. So we were asked to leave the room and I remember the boys had arrived. They said, my umpire's dead with their substitute referee, finished the match. And I gave Jim McGrath the keys of my car and he drove the car over from, they were over before half five, I'd say. And at 10 minutes to six, we were just in the room. There was a lovely nurse, Margaret McCarthy from Kerry. She was going in and out, keeping us informed. And the next thing I saw the doctor coming and he just put out his hand to me and he says, I'm sorry, we've lost him. I, I just did not know what hit me. I didn't know where I was. I said, I'll take the chance in ringing home again because another brother that has passed away since was there as well. He was up from Kerry working with the boys at home. And look, he answered the phone and he says to me, you know, what were they? I said, things are not good. I said, actually, I said, he has passed away. I said, don't say it out loud nor anything. I said, let's, I don't know how I'm going to get to tell mother. Father Welch, Seamus, brother I have living still in Fraban, <clears throat> a fair man to drive now, let me tell you. <laughs> and they were on their way to Dublin. And I took the chance in ringing him and I rang him and I said to him, I think I said to him, get out of the air. And I told him, and I said, you can slow down now. Because I said, there's no point in racing now. Maura was with him, Father Welch was with him. I think there was a sister of Maura's with him. About 10 to 6, he passed away. And uh, 58 years of age. Another brother, Pat, like we were talking about earlier, I mentioned him earlier, one of the eight. Pat died, Pat was the first to die in 1994. Pat died with cancer. And Tim died in 2012 from an aneurysm as well. Treat him. Yeah. That was it. But John, I couldn't, you know, I was really torn with John because John was a kind of our father. You know, he was the eldest when my father died. And of course he was doing something with you that you loved. <coughs> yes, match. and John was with me. If I refereed a challenge match in Balnahoun, John Buckley would be with me. And that was for 30 years now. Yeah. Thanks know. for telling that story. Cause yeah. I know it's a sad story, but... Yeah, I mean, but it's the reality. It is. I, I, we got hard knocks. Now, we had, no doubt, you know, I, I, as of now, I have married two sons and three brothers. And just down about 99 then, mother was really... John and mother were never out from under the one roof. 
Right. John Buckley was the man that was at home the whole time. And he never, nor mother, never in hospital dry. Mother was in hospital after John died. But like, she died the day John died. John died the 7th of March. Mother died the 26th of August. Just right. four months. Yeah. yeah. So, 99, we'll always remember. Right. A sad year. Catch yeah. Also, you, you mentioned that you've had other tragedies in your life. Yeah, we were, well, Margaret and I got married in 70, what, 72, I think. I said, yeah, 1st of August, 72. And our first, this, now, you think again, our first child was born on the 11th of May, 73. And John Buckley, who we're after spending the last five minutes talking about, was born on the 11th of May. Right. So the first child, we called him John. John Oliver. That was Big John's name, John Oliver. And uh, we lost John Oliver on the 31st of March, 74, with meningitis. And believe me, Lloyd, you know yourself, when a child, it might be only 11 months, but you were so used to him. And Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It was a hard time, that. We were we were up living, we were still living in Ahamor that time with Paddy and Nan O'Reilly. That was a Saturday. We were gone to a wedding. First cousin of mine was married. He married a girl over in Kilbegan and we were gone to the Royal Hotel in that loan. That Friday night he wasn't so well, but and anyway, but Saturday morning in great form and the child was to be brought down to a friend of Margaret's, Becky Malloy, to be minded and the father and mother said, no, you're not bringing that child anywhere. So we brought the cot down out of the room and we put it in the kitchen with them and they were quite happy. We went off to the wedding. The wedding was at 12 o'clock in Kilbegan and I know we were in the Royal Hotel and we're just sitting down to the meal and this girl come around behind me and she says, you're wanting on the phone out in the main hall, not thinking. And it was, I think, the late Joe Rabbit because Joe brought the child to the hospital in Tullamore and he told me he was gone to Tullamore, meningitis. So I went back in and I said to Margaret, she came, she wasn't going to stay and I, my mother was at the wedding as well and I went over and I told my mother but I absolutely took stones off the road coming from Athlone to Tullamore I dropped Mag up home in Ahamore and I went into Tullamore on my own and I always remember there was a sister de Pazia you might have heard of her she was a kind of the boss in the hospital or the head matron or whatever at the time and like the way she met me at the front door she asked me for a second name for they were going to confirm the child more or less telling you there's no hope but he lived on and on and we were there all evening I always remember he was under a Dr. Healy. Lovely man. I never heard tell of him since. And Dr. Healy had said to me several times during the evening, he says, if he gets a slight bit better, he says, we're going to move him to Dublin. But he says, you have to go travel in Dumblin's with him. I said, fair enough, I'd stay put. At this time, John, Dell's brother John and Maura were in and Hannah was living in a flat down in Church Street and she was a nurse in the hospital. She was working Friday night and was going into work Saturday night. She was into work before actually John died. Little John died. And uh, about quarter to twelve that night, Dr. Healy said to me, things are okay. He says, they're going to be okay till morning anyway. He says, go home. He says, and get yourself some sleep and rest. He says, come in as early as you like in the morning. If he's well, he says, we'll go to Dublin. I arrived home at the gates in Ahamore and my brother John and Kevin Lowry, who's still out there in Ballard. Kevin Lowry was the only one with a phone out that direction that time. And he got a phone call from Tullamore Hospital. He went up for John and were in to tell me the child had died. 
while I was traveling home to Lamar. Like for, for <clears throat> sorry now, for any parent getting that news is, yeah, is a nightmare. A nightmare. You know, like how, how did you get... Oh, but you know, looking back now, I don't know how we did, but we did get through. And then again, family support, you know, and we were living above with Paddy and Nan, which was great. They were great people. You know, and I remember that evening, Paddy got very upset at one stage that evening. And you may have often heard this saying. He says, why didn't he take me? He says, I'm old man. He says, and leave the child. So like, catch, so like, your son, young John, passed away. Yeah. Your brother, John, John passed away. Yeah. And then your late son, John, last yes. year, passed away from John was the, John Garrett, and then John. John was the third. We had four boys. We lost the first. Then Garrett was born, as I told you. 1975 and then John was born his birthday was last week believe it or not and uh, 27th of October 1977 Can you take us back when John got his initial diagnosis how did he face it together as a family? Yes I can I can recall that Tuesday I was going away to Trombo GA a friend of mine Pat Bracken and we visit a man up in Ballinabracky one of the greatest GA men going a man called John Moore. His brother Peter, I already mentioned him, trained Ballycumber to win their only senior championship in 68. And is married, was married and living in Scregan. Peter has passed away since. He was on the Mead team the Hundal Ireland Senior Football Final in 1967. But anyway, we were going to, to visit. So on my way in, I went into namesake Seamus Buckley, Bicycles in Tullamore, and I bought myself a brand new bike, which I had been intending to do for a long time. So... I know, I bought the bike off Seamus, and Seamus lives in Drumraney, the far side of Moat, Mount Temple. And I said to him, any chance of you dropping that in on your way home? I will. He said, no problem, because I said, I'm going away visiting, I don't know what time I'll be home. And I remember coming that night about 12 o'clock, and John was never a man for going to bed early. John had two or three hours, four Later. hours max. Yeah, but just, that was John. And he was there laying on the couch watching something on television, and... I was talking to him for about five or ten minutes and I went off to bed. Now, that's, he was normal John. I got up very early that morning. I know John was up and gone out of the house before I got up. But I got up, I'd say, now, that was 9th of October. I'll always remember, 9th of October, 218. And I went off cycling on my new bike. I went out my own country, Tubber. I went up to Ballycumber, up to Daly's at the cross and came back in the Rahan Road. And I came back in around nine o'clock and Mark said to me, Will you go down and let John out? He wants to go up to John Carberry to get his blood done and he thinks he has the jaundice. That was grand, I went down. But John must have thought I wasn't coming and whatever time he appointment he had made with John Carberry. And I met John halfway between my house and River Street, right there at Gunning's house. And Lloyd, I nearly didn't know him, he was going that yellow. That is the truth. I said, you have the jaundice. He says, I know I have. So I went up anyway and if you recall, there was a big show on that Saturday night. And John was in it. Lip sync. Lip sync. <laughs> and um, John Corby took his bloods and handed it to him. He says, John, bring them with you. Why, oh, he says, John, where am I going? I can't go to Tullamore. He says, I'm in the show Saturday night. <laughs> and John Corby said to him, he says, John, not alone is the John that's gone through you, he says, but he says, your liver is talking to you. So John went to Tullamore and I went back down to the shop. I might have not been there because, you know, I got... In a bad feeling. Yes. I had a bad feeling about it. 
But anyway, I was in the shop Friday evening. It was Friday morning first. Now, Garrett was teaching in Granard in Longford at that time. He's now principal in Forban. And I thought I saw Garrett go by the shop. And I had. I was right. Because John rang him. John got his news early Friday morning from a Dr. Conlon. He says, John, you have cancer. And he says, I'm not 100% sure how bad. Not. He says, I'm going to get you a bed in Vincent's. He says, that might take a few days, but he says, you'll stay here for the weekend. But believe it or not, John got out for the show that Saturday night. <laughs> was a huge success. <laughs> and went back in around 10 to 12, 5 to 12. But that was a marker of the man, wasn't it? Yes, that was him. Yeah. But um, I rang him Friday evening. And I was clarifying an order with him that was wrote in the book for Saturday morning. And he said, you haven't been home. I said, no, I said, and I said, no. And I said, I never saw anyone today. I said, ma, I wasn't down that way. Was, that's the way we talked. I said, ma, I wasn't down. Yeah. I saw nobody. See, Gary came home from Longford to tell her. And John and Cartage were very close. Cartage rang John, or John rang Cartage, and he told him. So here was the, I, the only one that didn't know. So he, he, he talked to me about order, and he says, look, he says, no pain in, you know, he says, I have cancer. Now, Carmel Kenny will tell you, Carmel was there in the shop with me. It really stung me. So we didn't know. We settled, and I was in and out. I was in and with him that night, and he came out Saturday night and done the show, and Sunday then. Wednesday evening, he got to bed in Vincent's, and he was under a Dr. David Fendley, who was an outstanding man. This, this went on for 12, 14 months after. And he went in to John on Friday morning, and Garrett and Wendy, Garrett took the day of school in Longford, and him and Wendy were up with him. And he went in, and he looked around, and he says to John, he says, who are those people? He says, John says, that's my brother and my sister-in-law. Oh, that's grand. He says, sit down there. And he told him. And it was within a week, I know, when I first met him. And he never spoke to me without John being present, or never spoke to John without me being present. And he did tell us he didn't think we were going to beat this. Straight, straight up for you? Yeah. John was there for about six weeks. That was the ninth, so it was roughly a week after the 16th of October, 2018. He had a lot of procedures done. One particular day he had three procedures done, and God help him, that evening he asked everyone that went near the place, will you please go home? I can neither kneel, sit or lie. I was up there. And he said to me, you get home as quick as you can, or how you can, and if you can't. You know, I was waiting for a car, I think, that I knew was coming up or something, but when he said to me, I know I went off home early in the train. Did you ever get a sense, Kat, sorry for cutting across you, that this is the the, the third John, do you know what yes. I mean, or the third person in your life. Did you ever just say, why, what? Yes, I do often ask. Why you was like her? That was the third John. Yeah. John come home on a Saturday morning. And Mags and I were sitting in the back room and at this stage I had walked out of the shop. Garrett said to me, close that shop and go out. The shop had gone down a side. Poor old John, I'd say, probably for, you know, when we look back now that he was so bad, lied. John was seriously ill for a long time and said nothing to no one. And even for how he carried himself for the 14 months, I'll always talk about it. He was brilliant. Like anyone, you meet anyone in the says, see John? That man, is he sick? <laughs> That's a fact. That yeah. is. Yeah. And it was always in the one form, yeah. great form, yeah. whatnot. I often was at home, because I did, as I said to you, I pulled out the shop that time, closed it up, I didn't even wait for Christmas. My mind wasn't 
on the shop. I have to say, there wasn't a day but I was with John. It had been Vincent's at home or wherever. But I would like to take this opportunity to say about the community at Clara. And I don't want to start naming names, Lloyd, because I'd be here till Christmas or after. The friends John had was unreal. I saw days, now this is when he was at home, I saw days that someone had called around half eight, quarter to nine. He was gone to Chorard and Mode for breakfast. He'd be home an hour or two and someone had called lunch, wherever. And that probably gone in then to meet someone in the court hotel that evening for a meal. The people they were just so, so good to him. But Clara GA has to be mentioned. And again, I'm not mentioning him, but Clara GA and this wonderful, wonderful band of friends he had. I never want, and I think I was in Dublin 270 days, probably over 14 months, I never once had to drive. Now, when he was in Vincent's, I wouldn't let no one drive me because I had a free pass, I'd hop on daily train, and I could come home when it suited me. But I always liked to be up early because John loved food. <laughs> and sometimes the breakfast above mightn't be. And it was this big supermarket just across the road from Vincent's. And you go over and get me something on the hot food counter. <laughs> and I'd like to be up early and get him coffees. He'd love coffees. And we'd come down then and we'd sit. We'd, we'd sit in the restaurant, no matter who'd be there, there was always a cup of tea and a scone going. When we were going in cars for, we'd say, daily trips, to be a car parked outside our house at half five, quarter to six. Never later. We'd be in Dublin, beat the real heavy traffic and the schools before seven, because if you didn't, if you were in Dublin at five to seven, you got to Vincent's at seven. If you were in Dublin at five past seven, it could be nine o'clock and you get to Vincent. That's how quick the traffic just drops on the road. So just again, the people at Clara, the GA club, what they done. I just, some of the words that I was reading there last week, the words to describe John, resilient, honest, brave, a leader, I can't, what I said wasn't in his vocabulary. Yeah, very, no. Like we've seen that publicly with John's cancer battle. I mean, he, he didn't give up. He, never, never. And people, you know, as I said, the people were just so good. But nobody, well, I won't say nobody, a lot of his friends, he told all his friends how sick he was and whatnot and all knew. But the amount of things that John had to get looked after, we'll say necessary things, and the way people were there to do it. John got an infection one time. He needed injections for a month. There was one of our local nurses, wonderful girl, there every night to give him his injection. As I said, the GA club with the cars. Halfway through the year of 19, we got word that he was going to Luke's in Ratgar for 30 days straight. Chemo, radium. Within 24 hours, there was a list of cars handed into our house for the 30 days. Some people's names were on it twice. It never come off after. It was cancelled at the last minute. It's dead with Vincent. But the cars were there. I never once or lied had to bring a car to Dublin. I must say, well, even from our own experience recently with yes. the passing of our John, John. our own John. Um, and isn't it funny now, not stopping you, I met John in Vincent. Right. One day, John and I and Father Conor McGee were sitting down having a cup of tea. And I know those two young men over at the table. But I thought they were looking our direction fairly often. At this, But Father Connor was leaving anyway. And I walked Father Connor to his car. And I come back in and John was here. And I said to John, he said, them lads are from Kil- Kilbride. And told me who they were. 
And we went over and we joined him. And young John told me, he says, he says, my dad, he says, won't last another couple of days. And that was of a Tuesday, and I think... That was John's father. Yes, John's father. Yeah. 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 Well, we must mention, John played every grade of football for the club, and Captain Clara did. John... Senior championship. Like his uncle John (laughs) has two senior championship medals. I have them now, they're in my possession, and two junior championship medals, and he captained both junior teams. 99 and 2007, he captained Clara's junior title. He won on the field of play. He won a senior championship medal in 2009 and was a sub in 2003. Both of the Johns had two senior and two junior football championship medals. How are you doing, Catch, now as a family yourself and Mags and the lads? Well, it's coming up to a year now. It's coming up to a year. Well, we had his birthday last week. It'll be a year on the 11th of December. Look, Lloyd, I'd be honest with you. Thank God this evening I'm great. And... I often, I go away every day, cycle and walk. I do have me bad moments to myself. And they do be bad. That's understandable, Catch. Yes. And you're allowed to have that. Yeah. Mags yeah. is better than I am. She's, yeah. she, you know, I'm not going to say she's great. That's be over top. Yeah. But, but, you know, she's but People good. do deal with it different. Yes, deal with it different. Yeah. I'm just going to finish off this little last piece. It was just sent in by Parik O'Mara on behalf of Clara GA Club. John's association with the club started at a very young age. He was a life member, played every grade of football for the club from one day dry up to adult level. And believe it or not, he actually played a bit of hurling. I can remember many's the time we were stuck for a junior B hurling team and John was standing corner forward for you. And that's the kind of fella he was. He never let the club down. John was a very self-motivated and determined person. Played between the sticks, which is, as most people know, it's a very difficult position. John proudly captained Clara to a 1999 Leinster Junior Football title uh, where they went on to represent Doffley and we won the Leinster final in 1999. This is a very proud occasion for John as a young man representing the club. He went on then to win two senior football titles in 2003 and 2009 and arguably you could say that John Buckley won us that championship in 2009. His bravery was second to none on the day. No roadman was going to come into his box and, and get their way, that's for sure, because he uh, he threw himself at everything. He made some fantastic saves and he fully justified um, being given the number one jersey that day and proved at the end of the day. John trained extremely hard. He was very self-motivated. He trained a lot of times on his own. He'd done a lot of road running. He'd done a lot of gym work outside of the collective trainings. He liked to keep himself fit. He knew what he had to do to stay at the highest level. John started coaching at a very young age. He um, started off with the Peter Rickard helping him with the Brother Urban League. He made a huge contribution to coaching over the years in his short life. Sometimes as a committee you find it hard to get people to take teams because everyone wants the good teams. But John Buckley took teams. But he just wanted to improve players and that's what he was good at. All the kids loved him. They called him Uncle Buck. John was a very positive person and this shone through in the club. He epitomised everything that was good about the club. He helped out at the lotto, the bingo. He was on the committee for over 20 years. He managed and trained teams. Any work that was going on, he was heavily involved in. Personally, myself, he was a great benefit to me as secretary for the last nine years. Could always trust him and go to him with and for advice. Uh, <laughs> that's one thing about John, he'd always be honest, but you'd never fall out with him. He, uh, he had a very good, strong opinion. Most of the time it turned out to be right. Wasn't afraid to air his opinion at AGMs and just let people know if he wasn't happy with the way things were going. And that's something I miss and something I loved about John Buckley, his honesty, his trustworthiness. 
He was a best friend to Manny, and not too many people can say that. He never complained, but his bat the battle he had right up to the very end. Uh, we're still very heartbroken, coming up to a year on his passing, and we think about him every day. I'd just like to wish uh, Catch and Margaret, Catch Jr. and Garrett the very best, and we're thinking about you. That was lovely. Lovely little, a lovely tribute, Catch, in fairness. Um, I have one last little piece of audio here from Gareth, your son. Yeah. Sit back and listen there. It's lovely to be asked to record a small little piece for this podcast on my dad. When I was asked to do it, I decided the first thing I should do is look up some of the previous recordings. And one team struck me straight away. How much of a pleasure it was for these people to be part of the community of the town. And I think that's something my dad would readily say that he feels the same way. While many people might know this, that is not actually originally from the town, but it is a place he's called home for so many years at this stage. It's a place that allowed him to open up his business, a shop that was so important for all of us in our house, a shop then that was taken on by John in more recent years. It's this shop where Dad could meet people on a day-to-day basis and spend so many happy years of his life. It's a shop where he got to stand beside people like PJ Rickard and chat about football more than the work at, at some of the stages. Clara's also a place that Dad got to become involved in so many different organisations. The Happy Clara GA, St. Bridges Credit Union, Christmas Lights and many other of the wonderful organisations that take place in our town. In terms of the role of the community in our life and especially in the life of my dad, I think it's never been more apt than the last couple of years. Where both mum and dad have got tremendous support through what has been a very, very traumatic time. As John faced his illness, a very difficult illness, Dad was able to be by his side at all times. But when he'd come home in the evenings, he'd know that people from the town would call in to have a chat with him and see how he is. And it's this support network that has been so, so important. And in recent months, after John's passing, they've been there day by day. So I would also like to take this opportunity to thank all the people in the town for all the support they've given Dad and to tell Dad we are so proud of him too. Very nice. That's Gareth. Garrett sent that in today. Lovely. So, I suppose Garrett is reiterating what we're talking about here with the, the, the support. Uh, look, I, I could stay the next hour with you telling you about Garrett and Wendy, even the young man Carter. Like, you know, Garrett and Wendy, we we just don't have to do anything. They look after everything for us. Yeah, wonderful. Lovely. Garrett also mentioned all the things you've been involved in down through the years. Well, I, I, I was always in, involved in something yeah, like, yeah. The Christmas lights, which is yes. coming up again. Well, all I can remember is, over Christmas Eve, we always we always closed our shop for one o'clock. We always said we'd have to get home early over Christmas Eve. Chris Daly was in the mill house at the time, and he says, isn't that town unreal? Not a light, not a decoration, nothing. He says, that'll be the last year of that. So during the year, there was a lights committee I was at the meeting. I wasn't on the first lights committee. It was Chris Daly, Brendan McGowan, Francis Feary, and Brendan Lowry, Brendan and Bridgie. And they started up a lights committee. Now, there was a fifth person, and I cannot think who it was. The following year, I was asked to go and join it, and I did. But as such, the committee lasted about two to three years. But the lights were set up, grand. And I said to myself, I'll keep this going. Now, it was a big job. Every bank holiday month of October, I used to have a sponsored walk. The whole town again turned out and I could give cards to everyone. Nobody ever refused. I got cards printed for the walk for Clara Christmas Lights. Bank holiday October, we do probably a walk out to Lamore Road across Kilmuckland and back in Kilcorshi. There was two ladies 
that were coming in and out to the shop to me and they always took cards and I'd do the walk. They've both passed away since the Lord be good to both Mrs. Kerrigan and Mrs. Payne. Just them two names. You know, a lot of other, no, I'm not leaving out anyone because there was a lot of other great people, the younger generation of women and they were brilliant, brilliant. Mrs. Kerrigan would take cards. She said, Catch, I'll fill card. She'd go over and she'd go in probably in the middle of the day and interrupt all the work going on in Damblin Centre. <laughs> but nobody refused her. And Mrs. Payne was brilliant. And them two ladies would do the walk. And I know there used to be the last two walking, and I always used to stay with them. Some of the walkers would be home, and the two ladies and myself would probably be only out and killing the bin at this stage. It was wonderful. But another person I have to mention, I never had to leave my shop, Lloyd. Michael Doolan was supervisor or in charge of the FOSS scheme in Clara at the time. The FOSS scheme put up the lights every year and the FOSS scheme took down the lights. So I never had to worry about that. Brilliant. So that part was looked after? That part was looked after. The money had come in from the walks and everyone had returned their cards and whatnot. Now, the businesses. All the business in town. I would leave it till after Christmas. The lights would be up. Christmas had be gone by and probably I used to work over Monday. About the first Monday, January, I get me little receipt book and off I go. I could be out all day into every business. I know at the time we were getting, I think, £50 from the ordinary business and we were getting £75 from the publicans. We had, I think, 10 or 11 publicans in town that time. And then all the local factories and that, I always got contacts i done that lights on my own for 13 years. But uh, as I said, I had the help of Michael Doolan and, and the FOSS mm. scheme. But organising the money and everything, i done that for that length of time. We used to have, we, I can't think of them all now, but we used to have some we great get guests. get some uh, personal satisfaction of... Uh, very much them. so. Very much so. Never let it fall down. And then I got tired, lightways. And I was out of ideas. I said, this needs a lift. And one Christmas... By accident, we saw on one of the Clara Town newsletters that half the businesses in the town weren't giving money to the lights. Garrett came down to me and he says, ah, he says, did you see the newsletter? This was St. Stephen's Day. There was one picked up in shops, some of the shops. I said, no. And he showed it to me and I read it. And I was very disturbed because no business in Clara ever turned me away. And, lo- and a lot of them, I don't want to mention names again. A lot of them gave me over and above. It's coming back around. I have some of the members in next week with me of the Clara Christmas lights. Yeah, well, I sent word out then and there was a, I went to the meeting myself. As a matter of fact, Lloyd, I can stand here clearly and say I left 13,000 and something in a bank for the new committee coming in. I went to the meeting. A certain gentleman jumped up at the meeting. He says to me, he says, you're not handing over that. He says, how do you know what's going to be, what's going to be done with it? I said, I am handing it over and I did. And publicly that night, I handed it over and the new committee, and, and they were a lovely committee, and they honoured me the same committee because the following year, I was invited to turn on the lights myself. That was nice. It was nice. I thought it was lovely. What? But they made a huge improvement. Do you see, there was a good committee. I was gone 13 years on my own, and I just had got slightly tired. I remember one morning, and it probably shouldn't have happened, I turned on the lights always on a first Tuesday night of December. Wednesday morning, I wasn't... An hour in the shop, this woman come in. Can't, she says, there's two or three bulbs down the bridge street not working. And I said, you know what you'll do now? I said, give me a fiver for each bulb. I said, I'll replace them. That was the end of that. <laughs> <laughs> 
But that was delightful. I did. I got tired. But and you, you did so much. That, and yes. We can't get into them all now, but you've done a serious amount of work for charity over the years. Which uh, is a, which is a yes, I did. I, I worked in the credit union on the board of directors. That was always voluntary work, you know, and I was there for, I think, about 13, 14 years. And when I opened my own business, I said, get out, out of town now, because I was on the loans committee. <laughs> For the whole time. <laughs> the Lord be good to me, how a guy in the tertiary was chairman. And he said, catch you a long time in Clara and you know the people and you're behind the counter. <laughs> he says, you stay on that committee. So I said, once I opened the shop, I was I stayed for about a year after I opened the shop because I remember every Saturday night, closed the shop, probably seven o'clock in your house with everything washed down and done, home and get to the credit union by eight o'clock. That time the credit union used to be open to nine. I would get all the applications. They all had to be filled into it on a form. And then the manager and the loans committee, the rest of the loans committee would join me at nine o'clock. I think my name was on a few of them. <laughs> so thanks a million. <laughs> you have a hobby of collecting GEA programmes. Where did that start and how many have you? <laughs> well, I know at one stage, and I wouldn't be exaggerating, I was, at one stage I'd anywhere between twelve to 14,000 programmes in my attic. Now, you see, the problem with me was there was that many people bringing me programmes. I could have two, three and four of the same programme. But I have gone through them, taken out photographs. I started taking out photographs of programmes years ago because I could buy lovely books in Eason's A3, A4. I have some collection of GA stuff. I can tell you this. Brian Carty brought out a championship book in 1995. I have every edition of it. So if anyone in Awfully comes to me and say, did Lloyd Bracken play for Awfully in 1997? I can open the book and check. He played, he would come on as a sub, he was taken off, he was substituted. The photographic book comes out, it's called A Season of Sundays, and I have every one of them. As a young lad, I have the papers at home from the draw and replay of Waterford and Kilkenny All-Ireland Senior Hurling Final 1959. There was also, back in, started in the 50s, and it continued till about 1970, on Monday, the All-Ireland Champions autograph, photograph, on Tuesday, the runners-up. I have that full collection of photographs. And I got the paper photographs done into good photos and I have them all put away in plastic in A4 size. Yeah, I'm a big collector of stuff, yeah. And I do a lot of GA quizzing. And now, it's not that I put a lot of time into GA quizzing. I would be... It's a long story in our house, you know, that my wife always says... There'd be two coffins when I'm gone, one for the photographs and the programmes and one for me. But she eventually, when the boys moved out, gave me a room. We took the bed out of the room and I got presses and shelves and whatnot. A man cave. So I have my own GA room. And I always had a fierce interest in Kerry football, Dublin and Mayo. Don't ask me why. And I get the Kerry and Dublin or Mayo papers, Dermot McKinney got them for me all down the year until I miss it so much since he closed. He still gives me supplements out of cork papers that he gets himself because his wife is a cork lady. Do you believe in this Mayo curse, Catch? No. I could tell you more reasons why Mayo didn't win All-Ireland since 2010 now. I've, I've just had my own opinion on what they were really missing. I'll tell you what we're going to do. We normally do a quick fire round. We're going to do a little sports quiz with Cat. Oh, see oh. how good he is. Oh, uh, no. no. <laughs> yeah, I tell you, you'll wreck me now. We'll give you a little bit of music before we go in. Right, Cat, we have a minute on the clock. 
Galway won their first All-Ireland under 21 hurling title in 1972. Who captained that team? Paddy Who was known as the Iron Man from Road? Paddy McCormack. Name the three famous Racker brothers from Wexford. Bobby, Willie and Nicky. Irish golfer Parik Harrington had a famous father for what was he famous for? Winning, or no, he played in an All-Ireland McCork in 56. And, you know. In what year was the first senior football All-Ireland played? 1887. 1888. <laughs> if my home ground was Dr. Hyde Park, I would have represented which county? Roscommon. What county won the first ever All-Ireland hurling? Limerick. Limerick. Limerick, yeah. Limerick, yeah. Limerick, yeah. The first general secretary of the GA was a Clare man. What was his name? Oh, Deneen or... No. A general secretary. No, I'm... You have me. Michael Cusick. Michael... Oh, Michael. Yeah, I should have known Where that. would you find GA ground Cusick Park? Mullingar, is it? Mullingar, yeah. yeah. Last one, what nickname was given to the Kilkenny sporting team? The Cats. The Cats. Well done. <laughs> we'll add them up. We'll tell you how he did later on. Yes, yes. <laughs> to finish off, would you have any advice for the younger generation in Clara? Things are so much changed now with the COVID and whatnot, but just, I suppose, keep themselves in a straight line. It's all right. If, you know, I can't sit here and criticise that youngsters are probably drinking too much. I don't know anything about it, like, because I believe it or not, I'm a pioneer and I'm a non-smoker and I don't be out. I don't be out the nightlife. I don't know what. But the advice I can give them is keep themselves on the straight. Any regrets in life, Catch? None whatsoever, because as I said, what happened, happened. What took place, took place. I got great enjoyment out of the refereeing. I got great enjoyment out of me working the shop, meeting people. I met some great people. And I met some great people through the GEA also. No, no regrets, no. Catch Buckley, thanks very much for joining me on the podcast. I really appreciate it. It was a pleasure. Thank you, man. Thanks a million. Take care. That was episode 21 of What's the Story. Hope you really enjoyed that. Thank you very much to Catch for being so honest and open. Uh, tough story in parts. And we wish all the Buckley family and many family and friends in GEA circles the very best of luck. Uh, in the future. I'm going to finish off with a last little piece from Lewis Kavna, who was part of the under-15 football team and he'd like to say a few words about John. Thanks everybody. We'll talk to you next week and take care. Hi Lee. Thanks for letting me come on the podcast to catch to talk about John and I also want to say hi to Mag, Garrett and Catch Jr. I'm talking on behalf of the under-15 football team here which would include players like Marcus Dalton, Barry Egan, Connor Dyle Dara McKeown, Hugh Hillard and Ben Kennedy. Sorry now, I couldn't mention them all, but I first met John when I was 13 and I was playing. I was asked to go up and play for the under-15s, which John and Tony Dalton was managing. For the first two years, we got to a fail of final, I think, and we got beaten. The first year, we got beaten by Ferban, and I can't remember who we got beaten by in the second year. But in the third year then, we went to play a league final against Ferban and we won. And then... Later on in that year, we played the championship against uh, Aidan Derry in Geishel one night and uh, we were beaten and we were all very sad because at this stage, John was sick and we just wanted to win it from. But uh, we said in the huddle after the game that no matter what, we were going to train like dogs and we were just going to win the minor from with the same team. John loved to take over age groups. One of his, I think, especially in the Brother Urban League because John just loved the game and he loved to teach people how to play the game properly and uh, he was very good at that. I can remember uh, there was a picture, I don't know who had it but uh, there was a picture of John when he was when he was a young young man like Noel Kelly was there and I think it could have been Catch Junior beside him 
there would have been a great bit of rivalry between the two brothers, but uh, John is a nice man and he never took anything too serious. Uh, again, on the football, um, for trainings especially, he was able to take things seriously, but then he was a great man for a bit of crack as well. So again, I just want to say how lucky we all were to have John as a manager and uh, he was just an overall very nice man. This week's podcast is sponsored by DW Plumbing and Heating, a locally based plumbing and heating company with over 15 years experience, service in the Midlands area, experts in fall finding with both oil and gas heating, specialising in complete bathroom refurbishments and MCZ wood pellet stoves. Find us on Facebook or call Dean on 086 Glore Tear is back. Don't forget to watch and vote for our very own Alex Rowe as he takes to the stage next Tuesday at 9.30 on TG4. Download the free Glore Tear app and get five free votes to help Alex on his way to Glore Tear success. Keep it country, everyone, and vote for Alex Rowe. Just listened to What's the Story with Lloyd Bracken. Check out all our social channels for info on new episodes. Oh, and thanks for listening. Honda Town. Town.